Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. Before we begin this episode of the Bully Pulpit Podcast, we want to alert you to the fact that Gilad Kariv makes reference to the Kotel and women's access to the Western Wall. In the intervening time since April of 2017, when this interview was taped, many things have changed. Today's episode with my friend and colleague, Rabbi Gilad Kariv, who is the executive director of the Israel Movement for Reform and Progressive Judaism, our partner in Israel, a frequent contributor to Haaretz and other Israeli media outlets, and a visitor to the United States. Gilad, it's really a pleasure to have you. Shalom, Bukhim Animtsayim. One thing I've noticed is you've changed your name from the IMPJ to the IMRPJ. Yes. So I want to ask you what it means to call yourself or ourselves, or what the difference is between the reform in Israel versus in the diaspora, not in America versus America, whatever you think, what is the importance of using words such as progressive, liberal, reform, and when we choose to use one instead of the other? First, let's address the issue from a historical perspective. For many years, for almost six decades, the founding fathers and mothers of our movement in Israel preferred the term progressive Judaism. It had to do with the fact that many of them came not from North America, but rather from Europe. And in Europe, in Germany, in other places, the term progressive Judaism that was attached to the World Union for Progressive Judaism was more familiar to those uh, founding generations. The second reason was that the assumption, and I tend to think it was an accurate assumption, the assumption was that uh, many Israelis identified the brand Reform Judaism with anti-Zionism, with attitudes uh, towards tradition that are not uh, welcomed by most Israelis, etc. A few, let's say, uh, 10 years ago, when we started to investigate the issue, we identified the fact that in spite the massive use of the term Yadut Mitkademet, progressive Judaism, the Israeli public is not really understanding what is behind this brand. And we saw that usually when, you know, I was asked many times, what are you doing? And I said, I'm the CEO of Atnuali Yadut Mitkademet. And then people would have asked, what is Yadut Mitkademet? And I had to say, Reform Judaism. And they say, ah, uh, now I understand. No, no. So Yadut so Mitkademet is not a brand, effectively. Yes. It, it, so first of all, it. yes. So, so first of all, we discovered that after 60 years of using Yadut <laughs> Mitkademet, still people say, well, what is Yadut Mitkademet? Yadut Mitkademet is Reform. But then, we, we continued and we asked ourselves, do we truly know what is the Kishke's attitude or the Kishke's response of our target audiences in Israel towards the brand reform Judaism? And we discovered that we never conducted any serious search around this question. And in 2006, we did maybe the first strategic study in regard to the attitudes of the secular Israelis and what we call the light traditional Israelis 
towards uh, our movement, our values, and our brands. And the brand. So before you go on, I just want to ask one thing. You, you spoke about the attractions of the word progressive or mitkademet in Israel, but you were gentle, I think, perhaps a little bit too gentle about the negative associations with the word reform. Mm-hmm. Is it not the case that in Israel, certainly in the non-American diaspora, the word reform actually has decidedly negative connotations. So that's exactly what we wanted to check. And you feared that. Yes. And the you were acting was, on the fear all these years instead of yes. investigating. And again, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to say, although we don't have the, the data, I'm willing to, to embrace the fear of the founding generations of our movement, mainly because Reform Judaism was identified with anti-Zionism. And again, for the generations of my parents and grandparents that were so deeply invested in building the state of Israel, the linkage between Reform Judaism and anti-Zionism was a very negative linkage. But once we studied it, and once we addressed our target audience with a direct question, what do you think about Reform Judaism? We discovered a very interesting thing, that around 80% of all secular Israelis that are our main target audience in Israel, Reform Judaism is a positive brand. Can I ask you what percentage of them were Israeli born? The vast majority of them. Mm. The vast majority, when, when it comes to the secular community in Israel, today the vast majority of secular Israelis are Sabras, first generation, second generation in, in, in Israel. And basically, when you talk with them about Reform Judaism, you see that first they identify the brand with our core values. Someone will say it's about uh, egalitarian worship style. Some will say it's about bringing the tradition closer to modern uh, patrons of life. Some will say social justice and tikkun olam. Some will say other things. But basically, they're right. They are right about it. They are accurate. And most of them, feel positively about uh, those values and the in our uh, reform brand. The bigger surprise had to do with the traditional community in Israel. Those hundreds of thousands of Israelis, most of them from a Sephardic background, you know, uh, uh, from families that came from Morocco, North African Iraq, uh, communities, yeah. Arab communities. This community, in spite of the fact that they are not Orthodox Jews, when it comes to their Jewish identity, they're leaning towards orthodoxy. And again, the good surprise or the good news was that more than 40% of Israelis that identify themselves as traditional Jews said good things about Reform Judaism. And once we, we got the data, we told ourselves, well, we don't really care what the Orthodox Israelis and the ultra-Orthodox right. Israelis right. have to say about They'll be this. equally unhappy anyway, and we don't care. It's not They're our not our target audience, right. Right. okay? And our target audience feel comfortable with the term Reform Judaism. And since then, for the last 10 years, we are proud Reform Israeli Jews. Nice. I think we still have progress, speaking of progressive, to make mm-hmm. in, the, uh, non, in the non-American diaspora yeah. with, the reform, with the Reform brand. It's yeah. associated with... Uh, some of the more negative ideas around Reform Judaism about it being not as committed. Yes, but at the same time, again, I think that the decision of the Israeli movement to use the Reform brand is slowly changing the attitude in other communities. For example, the leading British movement 
is now calling itself the MLJ, the Movement for Reform Judaism. The World Union is talking seriously oh, really? about using the two brands, you know, the, the way we did it, yeah. Reform and Progressive. So if you are embarrassed by your own brand, you can't sell the product, right, right, you know. Course. And we need to be proud that our reform heritage to embrace all parts of it, including those parts that should be left aside. Look, I'm yeah. a strict Zionist. Of course. But, uh, that's the essence of reform spirit. Yeah, so. and that's what we're trying to do. Good, great. Well, that's, uh, that's very encouraging. One of the major efforts that the IMRPJ exerts in Israel is to wedge itself into the political and financial mm-hmm. structures of the yeah. state of Israel. Before we go in that direction, though, I'd like to ask you to outline for us briefly what are the specific powers and privileges that the Orthodox establishment enjoys that we feel we have in our proportional claim to as well. There is freedom of religion and religious uh, practice in Israel. Sometimes people, you know, are confusing the Israeli reality with other countries around the world that truly uh, damage the, the, the freedom of religious practice of their citizens. No one is preventing me in Israel from being a reform rabbi, from leading a reform congregation and, you know, celebrating my individual and family Jewish life according uh, our reform theology. The problem is that there are few, let's call them constitutional junctions, in which the Israeli government is forcing the Israeli citizens to use the services of religious institutions. Of orthodox institutions. First of all, religious institutions. In general, no matter that, what your community That is. for itself right. is something that should not be accepted by... What you mean is that you can be Christian or Muslim or Jewish, but there's no civil marriage. Right. For the best example is marriage and divorce. Okay? Christian citizens are not forced to use a rabbi, but they are forced to use the religious institutions of their own uh, religious uh, community. That, again, for itself, it's something that we should not embrace. More than that, when it comes to the religious institutions that are forced on the Israeli society, all of them are the orthodox institutions of the different religious communities. It's in the Jewish community, the Orthodox monopoly, but it's also in the Christian community, the Druze community, and the Muslim community in Israel. So the the junction or the arena of marriage and divorce and family law, burial services, for example, the fact that Israeli citizens registered by the government also on the basis of their religious affiliation. Their identity cards and So one issue is with those arenas in which the Israeli government is ending a monopoly to the Orthodox institutions. The more challenging issue is with the establishment of religion in Israel. The fact that not like in the US, the Israeli government is not prevented from supporting religious institutions and the government is doing it on a massive base and again 99% of the government support for the establishment of religion in Israel is done through the Orthodox, the Jewish Orthodox institutions and in order to give the numbers the state of Israel is investing every year more than 1 billion US dollars in the Orthodox institutions in Israel 
the progressive movements, the reform movement and the conservative movement together, we are getting less than 10 million new Israeli shekels. So you understand that even if it's not about discrimination through legislation, leave aside the Kotel agreement, yeah. leave aside the issue of conversion, marriage and divorce, only by the fact that the government is giving so much money. Orders of magnitude more to Orthodox. Yes. So I think that the main challenge we have is, of course, also to fight for civil marriage in Israel and to implement the Kotel resolution and to prevent any new legislation around conversion. But the main issue is to secure our ability to enjoy public funding as long as the Israeli government supports religious uh, services. That's the main issue. Understood. Let's move on. Since you mentioned uh, the Kotel, the, yeah. the Western Wall, in an opinion piece in Haaretz, which you wrote about five months ago or so, you criticized Prime Minister Netanyahu for a combination of moving too slowly and backtracking. Yeah. And you argued that we, non-Orthodox Jews of all stripes, really have no choice but to move ahead boldly, more aggressively yeah. in light of that. I want to leave us, we can get back to it, but I want to leave aside for the moment which of these two tactics is better, to go gently and to try to get uh, incremental progress or to go boldly and to get more progress all at once. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question about your personal impression of the political personality of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Do you believe that his commitment to egalitarianism, which I think he has some commitment to, yeah. do you think it will ever rise to the level of his very, very deep commitments also to a kind of political dance that he is shown himself willing to define himself by? Mm -hmm. Can we ever hope to push one against the other successfully? I'll start by saying that, you know, uh, by a simple use of Google, people can easily identify my political affiliation. I never placed it aside. Uh, my board supported me when I said that aside to my leadership in the movement, I'm also a, a small political figure in Israel, okay? And I'm saying it because people know that uh, I do not belong to the prime minister party. In Israel, there is an expression, gilui naot. It's a decent uh, disclosure. So no, I right, need right, to, right. to have an honest disclosure that I, I'm not a member of the Prime Minister Party. Yet it is important for me to state that more maybe than any other Israeli Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu gets the importance of the relations between the diaspora jury and the state of Israel. He lived for a long time yes. in America, right? Look, he lived for a long time in America. When it comes to his personal lifestyle, he's a strict secular Zionist Israeli. His second wife, the current wife is the third, his second wife was converted to Judaism in a conservative Big congregation. Deal. So he's familiar, first of all, with the North American Jewish lifestyle, but more than that, he really gets the strategic importance of North American Jewry, maybe more than any other Israeli prime minister. And this is something that we need to say out loud and we need to recognize the fact that, you know, he is a right-wing leader. And by definition in Israel, right-wing governments are based on the orthodox and the ultra-orthodox support. By definition, you can't build... Right, it's a numerical question. 
Yes, but you know, it's even an ideological question. The, the real political partners of the Likud party, the most natural partners of the Likud party are the National Orthodox and the Ultra-Orthodox parties. This is the case since 1977. They have a very strong political alliance in the end. And when you identify the fact that it is Prime Minister Netanyahu that during the days of a right-wing government led the negotiations around the Kotel, led the government to take the resolution, that Prime Minister Netanyahu never crossed the red line around the issue of conversion legislations in Israel. You know, he, he got closer, he, he got quite close to the red line, but he always identified the moment of moving back. And that's something that should be said for his benefit and for his credit. Now, at the same time, unfortunately, Prime Minister Netanyahu didn't discover or didn't present strong leadership, a political leadership, after the government took the resolution around the Kotel. And we said to the Prime Minister, and I still believe it, that the ultra-Orthodox parties will not go to the polls on the basis of their uh, refusal to implement the government resolution. And I think that Prime Minister Netanyahu failed here to show the necessary political leadership by telling his partners, that's the resolution, that's my commitment Live to that. Yes. And You're saying, to, you said to him, you think that he could afford. Yes. Because, yes. because they wouldn't change their vote Look, on the basis unfortunately, of this is the best government to the ultra-Orthodox parties yeah. that ever existed and in they Israel. Know it. And they, know. they know it. They will not risk their achievements. And it is not the first time, and this is not all the, the only arena in which Prime Minister Netanyahu, after presenting a strong leadership, failed to maintain this level of political uh, leadership yeah. and commitment. Right. And, and that is why, that's my, you know, Last comment around this issue, Israel has a very complicated political structure and, and system. I think we discovered in recent months that the U.S. has... No, a, nonsense. Yes, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> it's a very complicated system. The, the need to build the coalition and the... Right. The parliamentary system. Yes, yeah. the parliamentary system creates many, many challenges. I think it's a good system. Mm, there we could have another debate. Uh, yes, I feel much comfortable to have this debate with you nowadays, uh, a few <laughs> months uh, <laughs> ago, uh, so we can have it. But keeping in mind the complicated political structure in Israel, it is clear that sometimes you need the government to take a resolution and the Supreme Court to impose the government to implement its own uh, resolution. That's the way it works in Israel, and that's what we're trying to achieve right now with our petition to the Supreme Court around the Kotel Agreement. And how are you feeling about prospects? I believe that in the end, the Israeli Supreme Court will guard the right of non-Orthodox Jews to worship in an egalitarian style at the wall. I'm not so sure that the court will find the way to deal with all the small details of the agreement, but the basic notion of creating two areas of worship will be protected by the Supreme Court, and I believe that in the coming few months we'll see some progress in this arena. If that's the case, if it turns out that way, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu will have been vindicated. Yes, and, and look, we are willing to embrace this fact and to celebrate it again. Look, take for example the Supreme Court, the, the, the American Supreme Court resolution over gay and lesbian marriage, okay? It will be a mistake to minimize the constitutional effort only to this dramatic uh, resolution of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court resolution was given after a few decades of public, educational, political, and constitutional legal effort. That's the case, I think, with our efforts in Israel. Uh-huh. Need, yeah, I understand. And, and I think we need to understand that there will be no rapid change in Israel. In the area of religion and state, it's all about evolution and not a revolution. But each party needs to play its role in order to sustain this long process. Our role is to do two things. One is to set facts on the ground in a very Zionist way, okay? To build more and more congregations, to ordain more and more rabbis through the HEC, the Hebrew Union College campus in Jerusalem, to build new preschools, to go into public schools, and actually to create this critical mass of Israelis that will support our political and constitutional vision. The second thing we need to do is we need to have a very bold and strong policy vis-a-vis the Israeli government, vis-a-vis the Israeli Knesset and the Supreme Court, knowing that this bold policy will be balanced by the political circumstances in, in Israel. And that's our duty. Prime Minister Netanyahu will carry his uh, political duties. And in the end, I think that when you look at the subject from a historic perspective, you see that we are doing a real progress in Israel. That's encouraging, and we're moving in the right direction, is what you're saying. Yeah. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the bully pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I would like you to introduce our audience to this fascinating and uh, sometimes apparently contradictory personality of President Reuven Rivlin. <laughs> he is someone whom uh, American Jews do not necessarily know that well. He's an important figure, and he represents powerful ideologies in Israel, and he embodies sometimes really interesting tensions. Introduce our audience to him and talk about some of those tensions. So President Reuven Rivlin definitely became to be one of the most uh, respected Israeli uh, leaders in recent years. In that regard, I think that he succeeded to fill the huge shoes that President Peres, Zichrono Livracha, left when he ended his term as the state's president. Ruven Rivlin identifies himself maybe as the last or the real guardian of, the, of Jabotinsky's philosophy. Jabotinsky, the 
great Zionist leader, the main opposition to the Ben Gurion style Zionism, and famously associated with the right wing and he is the founder of the Zionist uh, uh, right wing movement Beitar that then established the Likud Menachem Begin was his disciple Ruven Rivlin truly identifies himself as the guardian of the liberal and progressive agenda of Jabotinsky, that while being a very forceful right-wing Zionist leader before the establishment of the State of Israel, was also a true liberal European right. figure. Always uh, arguing that he would defend the rights of the Arab The rights of the minorities and, and that Israel should be a strong uh, uh, democracy. He was a very um, strong advocate of the free market approach, but at the same time Jabotinsky identified the responsibilities of the state and the government to provide the basic needs of all citizens. Now, Ruven Rivlin... Uh, we have to pause here and point out that everything you've, that you've just articulated begs the question, then, why do we call him right-wing? And probably the primary reason he was right-wing was because he had a very, very aggressive territorial position for he, Zionism. Yes, he believed, he believed that in the end, the only way to secure the future of the not yet born state, because he worked in the 30s and in the 40s, was to have a very, you called it aggressive, I think, a very strong security policies, okay, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Arabs and the Palestinians. He opposed the plan to divide the two states, right? state, but he did it because he identified what is today Jordan as the territory for the Palestinian people. He right. thought that we already compromised on a two-state solution when we embraced the, the notion that only the west side of the Jordan River, right. from the river to the sea, belongs to the future Jewish state. And he said, well, Jordan is part of the historic land of Israel, and it was given right. by the British mandate to the Arab nations. At the same time, as you said, he held very strong views about the need to protect the rights of the minorities and some very progressive social agenda. Now, Ruby Rivlin, President Rivlin, believes, and I think he is right, that the Likud, the governing party in Israel, the disciples of Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin, in a way lost their ideological way and caved in by embracing a more nationalist and traditional right-wing views. He committed himself to use his presidency to protect the core democratic values of Israel, but also, and that's I think uh, the important nuance that he brought to his presidency, in a way, he is the most vocal thinker today in Israel about the issue of a multicultural Israeli society. He, he talks a lot about the different tribes, that Israeli tribes that replace the vision of a melting pot, uh, of a Zionist melting pot philosophy. He talks about the secular tribe, he talks about the Arab tribe, he talks about the Haredi tribe, he talks about the modern Orthodox uh, uh, tribe in Israel, and he works a lot to 
present uh, an Israeli philosophy, a neo-Zionist philosophy of how can those four tribes live together in the state of Israel. Two things I have to say about this uh, vision, and basically I agree with him that Israel needs to find a way to embrace its multicultural face. One is that I'm not sure President Rivlin is investing enough efforts in creating the common base. When you live in, in a multicultural era, aside to celebrate the right of every tribe community to maintain its own culture, you need at the same time to invest a lot of efforts in order to create the common the a common shared ground. civic yes. culture. Okay, it's right. otherwise you, you get Lebanon. Yes. Okay. I can even say that as a precondition to your efforts to secure multiculturalism, you need to make sure that there is a, a shared a, a circle for all the tribes. I'm not so sure that President Trivlin is identifying the importance of this shared space of all the tribes. The second thing is that I think in a way President Trivling is simplifying the Israeli mosaic. I think he is leaving aside few of the important communities, including in a way our community. President Trivling is coming from a very traditional background. Right. In the past, he was quoted uh, saying uh, troubling things about Reform Judaism. Calling it idolatry. Yes. He came back from a, a visit to North America. It was the first time he was exposed to our synagogues here. He was not well prepared. It is quite clear that the organizers of this visit, historic visit, didn't... And it was many years before he was the speaker of the Knesset and, of course, the, the president of Israel. We are talking 25 years ago. But as a vocal Israeli politician, he said troubling things about uh, Reform Judaism. It was clear that he didn't get the story. He didn't understand it, he didn't get it. Today, is holding different views. I think that we succeeded in the last two decades to, to educate him. To bend his ear a bit. He yes, listened. and he met our people, he met the leaders of the Union of Reform Judaism, he met the leaders of the Hebrew Union College, and he, he had many opportunities to see that we are not a Jewish demon. Yeah, right? Right, right. Um, still, I must say that I don't identify in him. He's very polite towards uh, our movement. He is welcoming us. The Hebrew Union College board uh, visited his, him in his house in Jerusalem. Yeah. The Union of Reform Judaism mission did it a few weeks ago. He's very welcoming and he's very polite. I'm not so sure he identifies the important role that we need to play today in Israel among traditional Jews and secular Jews. And here we have four more years to his presidency. That's your job. That's our job. It's our collective, yeah, yeah, it's uh, job. collective job, yes. So tell me something about Israeli progressive or reform Judaism that American Jews need to know that they don't know. Tell us something essential. Interesting question. Let me share with you one uh, statistics that maybe tells everything about 
our challenge in Israel, but also something about our opportunity and the potential that we have in Israel. More than 90% of all Israeli Jewish boys celebrate a traditional bar mitzvah in a synagogue with reading from the Torah, even if they are secular Israelis, young secular Israelis. Less than 2% of all Jewish girls in Israel mm. are celebrating a synagogue-based bat mitzvah. Even in the most egalitarian Israeli families that are trying to educate their girls, that the sky's the limit. When it comes to this issue of Jewish identity, still the vast majority of non-Orthodox Israeli families will not do something Jewish for the bat mitzvah of their girls. It tells you something about the challenge we face. This is a, a, a traditional society that fully respects the role of Jewish tradition, but is not yet in the egalitarian progressive phase. But it's, a, the same, it's a passive kind of traditional. Yes, uh, yes. It's not a proactive approach towards right. Jewish... But in its passivity, it seems very entrenched. Yes. And, and more than that, I think that it tells you something about the potential. It means right. that you're not starting from nothing. You have a very strong base among the non-Orthodox Israelis. The average secular Israeli behaves many times like the average Reformed Jew in America when it comes right. to celebrating the holidays, to the role of a Shabbat dinner in family life. The point that we start the discussion in Israel is different from where you have to start it with a right. diaspora Jewish family. So again, it's a huge challenge because we have to battle with more traditional perspectives. Or assumptions. Uh, yes. But at the same time, it tells you that the average secular Israeli family is already... Not so secular. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, we are very careful in not telling them you're not secular right. because we respect the way they, they identify themselves. But, but we feel that the average secular Israeli family already did halfway towards a more profound Jewish life, communal Jewish lifestyle, and that we need to meet them in a serious way. Now, the, the, the second thing I want to share with our audience is that in spite of the fact that Reform Judaism was not a key player in the establishment of the State of Israel, it's not a secret, right. we have many, many things to be proud of. The founder of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem was Rabbi Yudha Leib Magnus, mm -hmm. an ordinee of the Hebrew Union College that made Aliyah in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Hannah Senesh uh, grew up in a neological Hungarian family, basically a reform Hungarian family. Herzl was raised in a neological mm. Hungarian Jewish uh, family. Henrietta Sol, the founder of Adassa, was a, a prominent conservative Jew. In 1926, she founded an egalitarian minyan in Jerusalem together with Rabbi Professor Yudha Leib Magnus. There is a reform history, reform Zionist history, that begins, you know, decades ago. And I think that one of our duties is to recapture our part of this uh, great story of establishing the Jewish democratic state that we have today. And we have many reasons to be proud that the, the huge contribution of reform rabbis and reform lay leaders to the Zionist endeavor and to the creation of the State of Israel. Hear, hear. 
here's to our uh, future progress moving forward. Thank you, Rabbi Gilad Kariv, for joining us. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.